Welcome, everyone, to another installment of the D&D Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Merles, and joining me this week are Jeremy Crawford. Hi, everyone. Rodney Thompson. Hey, everybody. And our special guest, Steve Winter. Hello. So this week, we are going to talk about the upcoming reissue of the second edition AD&D Core Rulebooks. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, so we actually just had copies of the reprint of the second edition Coral Books dropped on the table here where we're having the podcast. And so, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about your relationship to these books and your role in bringing second edition to the world? Oh, wow. Well, uh, where to start? <laughs> um, we had the idea to, to do a revised edition of, of uh, AD&D had been kicking around for quite a few years um, around the company. And the, you know, the common wisdom was that we would never get permission Right, because it, it definitely was a uh, kind of a ground up movement. Right, started at, in R and D and worked its way up through the chain of command. Um, and so we we talked about it a lot and the things we would kind of ch- that we would want to change. And uh, Unearthed Arcana had obviously changed a bunch of things. And then uh, when we did Oriental Adventures, that was sort of a, a testing ground for a bunch of ideas that we had, and it was really popular. Uh, that helped a lot. Uh, but we we wound up we sold the idea to management because of course the the executives were terrified of the idea of of upsetting the whole customer base and driving away customers. Coupled with the idea of well, if we put out if we put out a new book, that that what happens to all the old books? Right, we have stores with all these books. We won't sell any players' handbooks for a year while we're making the new one because everyone will know the new one's coming. So we basically sold them on the idea that it was we weren't going to change the game. We were just going to reorganize the books, right? The books were very difficult to use. The, the player's handbook, the DMG, badly organized, um, written at a college reading level, uh, it, you know, that that was hurting the game. New people couldn't get into the game. So if we, if we cleaned up the organization and we simplified the language a little bit uh, to make it more accessible, that that, that would be a, you know, a net win. Um, and of course, along the way, we did make changes <laughs> to the game, but uh, that was not the, the main selling point to the executives anyway. So the uh, around what time, like you mentioned, our, our North Dakota came out and everything. What was the earliest sort of stirrings that a second edition would make sense in R&D? Was that like around what year? Well, it, it would have been around the time of uh, Oriental Adventures, which I'm thinking was about 85, I think. Because that was where we were really, uh, Zeb was really playing with different ideas and the non-weapon proficiencies and and piecemeal armor and you know a lot of uh, kind of stretching what AD and D had allowed up until that point, and that was where we you know really were thinking, man, we'd love to a incorporate some of these things because anything we did in something like Oriental Adventures, it had to be considered optional, right? The philosophy was. The only books we can count on people having are the player's handbook and the DMG. And so if we make a change in OA, we can't, we can't assume that to be canon in the game. Um, and we, but we really loved a lot of the things we were changing in OA. And we're like, you know, if we could make these an official part of the game, that would be great. Um, so OA was kind of the big, you know, that was the point at which we, had, we kicked the can over and we're like, oh, look. Somebody get a mop. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I remember when Oriental Adventures came out, 
it, a lot of the mechanics in it were sort of like a revelation at the time for for D and D. And so when second edition came out, I was excited to see things like non weapon proficiencies carried over. Mm-hmm. Now, were there because you you mentioned that the the executives, the business side, was very much opposed to upsetting the apple cart. Were there changes that R and D wanted to make that? ended up not going through or that kind of died in design because of that? Or was there a sense of like that was a pretty workable solution for the team? There were all kinds of changes that we would have made if we'd been given a free hand to make them. Uh, An awful lot of what ultimately happened in third edition. I mean, we heard so many times, why did you keep armor classes going down instead of going up? I mean, it's like people, people were somehow thought that that idea had never occurred to us. <laughs> you know, uh, we had tons of ideas that we would have loved to do, but uh, we had a, still a fairly narrow mandate. It was that whatever was in print should still be largely compatible with second edition. Yeah. You know, if all of your, all the previous adventures and things, suddenly none of the armor classes make sense, none of the hit points tally, um, none of the spells work, that was a road we were not allowed to go down. I don't necessarily disagree with that decision. Yeah. It would have been nice to have a little more leeway than we had, um, but you know, for the most part, Zeb and I were pretty happy with the mandate that we got. And I remember, as a you know, by because I would have been fourteen or so when Second Edition first came out, it was nice that there was. In, it wasn't really didn't really interrupt anything. Like I remember buying the Greyhawk Adventures book, and it was just compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the adventures that came out there really wasn't any disruption. I didn't have to go back and relearn the game. And I think that that did help a lot to just transition to it. But it's funny, the um, so things like, and I'm actually, I'll bring it up the, the, this topic. I, I'll let Rodney and Jeremy ask questions too, but I'm going <laughs> to monopolize the first part at least. So I remember, like, so we talked about like the rules and stuff not changing, but I remember, and this is my big thing with second edition, right? Like my beef with it, so to speak. The monk and the assassin and the barbarian cavalier weren't in the player's handbook. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure you maybe you've overheard me talk about this in the office, but it's so funny to look back when I was a kid, you know, because I was 14 when it came out, and I was so upset. I'm like, we're going to play first. We're, gonna, we're not going to second edition. We're going to play first edition. And then I, as I mentioned in, before we actually started recording the podcast, I wore through two second edition player's handbooks <laughs> because we used it so much, right? And it wasn't, right. they were well-made books, which I carried it everywhere, and that was the, that was the go-to book that was in every single game I ran or played, and I like spilled pop on it and you know sat on it and all this stuff. I had you know, to go through two of them because the rules were so much easier to understand where between that and pool of radiance is like when we finally figured out how to play ad and d the uh <laughs> so how what was the balance between saying some classes are going away or and later getting expressed as kits versus the core mechanics uh well the the guiding force there was it a class had to be a really solid recognizable and frankly european archetype mm-hmm. to go into the player's handbook. That's why the monk didn't go in because that was, we figured it doesn't belong in here with, uh, you know, with our European knights and, and Robin Hood and all those kinds of things. The assassin, well, the cavalier went away because just nobody liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mike, you, may, you, know, you and your friends are alone in that regard. Um, the assassin went away because we had seen uh, through letters from customers and talking to people at conventions just so many cases of the assassin ruining campaigns. People who played assassins felt like that was carte blanche to murder their fellow player characters. Oh, interesting. Um, 
and you know we got just all the time we got letters from people complaining that what do I do about this player? He wants to play an assassin, but he keeps assassinating the other PCs, <laughs> right? And, and so we kind of, I mean, it didn't take a lot of reflection. We It was one of the first decisions we made, I think, actually. It was, what is an assassin? An assassin is somebody who kills other people for money, right? Well, you don't need a class <laughs> for that. Yeah. If you're a fighter and you get paid to go murder people, then you're an assassin right. or a wizard or a thief or whatever it might be. If you want to murder people for money, then do that within the context of the game, of course. Um, but <laughs> you know, we, didn't, we didn't need to enshrine that and and you know give people permission by right. naming that their class that. It's it's interesting because we obviously face very similar questions with with dnd next right where like well where does the warlord fit in as a class and very similar conclusions of like and you know, we can look at player data and see well how many people are actually playing this class right and therefore how much how much work do we want to do to actually put into this archetype and how broad is the archetype and things like that and things like do you want an assassin in the game you know i remember at one point we talked about calling the like we, we i mean we have thief and assassin as subclasses of the rogue but it is like you don't want people to think, well, thief means I steal from other players. It's more, you know, we want to express that more like, oh, no, you're, you're, you're a tricky guy. You're just, you know, you're the, the, the lovable scoundrel. You're not the guy who picks the paladin's pocket, right? <laughs> the, the, uh, and same thing with assassin, you know, just trying to frame. I, and I think in some ways, too, for us at least, it's a little easier because people have played so many fantasy video games that right. mm-hmm. you can look at assassin like, oh, it's the guy who does a lot of damage, right? People have a little more of a mechanical approach. Well, I was just going to say, it, it, you mentioned like picking pockets. It's the same exact thing. In the, in the player's handbook, there was a table and it told you this is your chance to pick someone's pocket. And so when you're sitting around the table and the thief player is getting a little bored, and there's another PC standing right in front of him. I mean, I, I can't count the times that I was at a table and somebody was like, I'm going to try to pick his pocket. <laughs> and right away, I was like, oh, don't, please, don't. You know, <laughs> because he, everyone knows it's just going to cause problems within the party. But the table is there. The percentile dice are on the table right in front of the guy. He's going to roll them. And, and when there's that assassination table in the book, it's the same thing. It's like, well, hey, you know... We kind of argued about who was going to get the magic ring after the last <laughs> adventure, and I didn't get it, and I really want it. And, and so, hey, I have a 83% chance to assassinate him. I'm going to do it. And the same thing. Everybody cringes and complains. And So when you're working on the game, Second Edition was really renowned for the, the settings that came out. Um, like Ravenloft, Planescape, and stuff. Was that part of the design? Was that like something that when you're working on the game, like the designers thought, hey, we're going to use this game for a lot of new settings as opposed to like more mechanical stuff? Or is that just kind of come out, that come out of the woodwork later on? Yeah, that was more of an organic sort of thing that, you know, it it really just kind of developed that way. It, it was sort of a, I wouldn't say slow. I mean, Forgotten Realms, Greyhawk did pretty well. And then when Forgotten Realms came out, it was suddenly like, wow, there there really is a market here for the, you know, big deluxe boxed campaign worlds. We knew going into uh, second edition that we had to find a good way, a good line of products to support this brand, right? Um, that was where like the PHBRs and DMGRs, those were planned right alongside everything else, um, at least in terms of what they would be, not the content necessarily. Oh, okay. 
the the campaign worlds no those those tended to grow uh, as I say more organically and but it was those were really interesting uh, sessions I mean we had long mass meetings where we would sit around and, and brainstorm ideas for campaign worlds um, and there were amazing uh, topics that came out of those I mean the, there were all kinds of things. I wish we could have done three or four campaign worlds a year yeah. <laughs> to get all that stuff in print. And of course, we it was like one every two years. So, uh, yeah, there was a wealth of ideas that never got off the ground. But was was there one in particular that didn't make it that you wish had seen the, the light of day? Um, there was one. Yeah, there's one that always comes to mind. Um, it was proposed by Jeff Grubb, and it was I forget what the name of it was, but uh, the idea was. Uh, a world that uh, there there are all these mountain ranges and all of the civilization, basically the good part of civilization has all been driven up to the tops of these mountains. And then there's a tremendously thick cloud layer. So everything, wherever the sun shines is where good exists. Everything beneath the cloud layer is has been overrun by evil. And then there are cloud ships that sail out from these mountaintop cities across the clouds and people, the adventurers, essentially rappel down <laughs> to the world where they, you know, go raiding the, uh, you know, the lost, the, the ruined cities that used to be down there mm. looking for gold and metal and all the kinds of things that they don't have in these mountaintop cities. That is really cool. Yeah, 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 I'm, I, I, yeah. I'm like, I want to play. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm sure that I've probably seen that in half a dozen animes now yeah, yeah, <laughs> in, sure. in the years right. since. But it was a, you know, it was a great idea at the time. And oh yeah, I, I it's still too. a great idea. Yeah, it'd yeah. make a great campaign. Yeah, it's got a good pitch to it. You just like that, you mm -hmm. sold it, right? Like yeah, that. <laughs> didn't take much. Go. That sounds really cool. You can easily grasp it. Yeah. So when you mentioned like the PHBR series, like Complete Fighter and stuff, so did kits, which I think were kind of like the signature expansion mechanic for second edition mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. So was that something that came once a work on Complete Fighter started, or is there any influence in the core game development? Well, we knew that that was a direction we were going to go. We mm -hmm. hadn't really developed the idea. Which I think was it Aaron Alston who did I Complete Fighter. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, there. so so he was the one who really uh, sort of fleshed out the idea of what a kit would be. Um, and then it evolved a bit, too, as the books went on. And eventually, you know, as we all know, kind of went off the rails <laughs> at some point. Yes, um, complete book of rails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, Appomattox Courthouse for kits. Yes. Was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yes. <laughs> time, to, to, time for the curtain yes, to drop. This is it yes. now. <laughs> yes. yeah. Recon let reconstruction begin. Yes. Right? Like, no, but it is the... Because uh, I remember when I first got Complete Fighter, it really... I thought it was... I, I love the, the... Complete Fighter is probably one of my favorite D&D supplements I've ever had. The uh, Just because it... I like the approach of adding all these kind of option rules to, to plug into the campaign. And kits seem to fit in really well with like changing how weapon proficiencies worked or having a campaign where there's only fighters. So mm -hmm. I'm just curious like how much effect that had when you're building the core game or if that was more just someone... Well, here's the game. Here's how we could expand it. Because we're very mindful these days of like... And I think this is just harder, harder to experience, right? Because we've learned that it's a good idea when you're building your core to think how are you going to build that out. But I mean, in a lot of ways, in 1989, like no one had done that before with D and D, right? I mean, for first edition, you had Unearthed Arcana, which was like a core supplement, I guess. But even like Oriental Adventures, like well, to, at least my gaming group, we thought it was a different game. Like we didn't mix the two. It's like you're either playing in Kawatur or you're playing regular D and D. 
I guess that wasn't a question. That was just a statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but uh, there were things, I mean, I recall clearly, I couldn't give you exact examples now, but there were times when we were trying to figure out what would go into the player's handbook and, you know, abilities that could be given to the fighter or, or the paladin or whatever they might be, and you know, saying, eh, let's let's save some of that. Yeah. <laughs> we we have expansions we need to we need to fill up too. We can't right. put everything in the PHBR and mm -hmm. we don't want to put everything in the in the PHB. Yeah, it'd just be overwhelming. Yeah. It's funny, as I, as I'm looking at this stack of second edition books on the table, it, it just struck me that one of the most remarkable things about second edition for me, especially compared to first, is it's actually the first version of AD and D that I played actually by the book. Mm. Because because as a kid, my friends and I couldn't actually ever figure out all the official rules in yeah. first edition. Because you you know we've joked before about like the surprise rules in in first edition. I still have a hard time figuring out what Gary meant. We couldn't figure out yeah. how the <laughs> yeah. surprise rules were supposed to work. And and so yeah, second edition was it was the first time that I sat down, read through an entire. You know, AD and D rule book, and we played the game the way it was written. Um, so, I mean, these days that sounds like a funny, you know, claim to fame. But yeah, it's like this is the first version of D and D that you could, you could actually play it. At least the first version of AD and D that you could play the way it was written. So, uh, Mike and I have mentioned uh, transitioning from uh, first edition to second edition. But Rodney, I know that second edition was your first edition of D&D. Yes, D &D. that is true. I am I am the young one here. But yeah, uh, I started with second edition, and and for me, uh, I think my first exposure to D and D came. Around the time that that second edition was becoming a thing, but I, I knew a guy in my neighborhood who had gotten the first edition books, and he tried to explain it to me, but it was all just Greek to me. And it wasn't until the second edition books came out that I was able to get into it and start learning. And it, it helped that I was right at about the age where I was transitioning into you know wanting to do more. Uh, oh, I want to you know play play more adult type games and stuff like that. And so of course D and D being you know advanced right there on the cover, right? right? I was like, yeah, okay, this is obviously a game for advanced gamers <laughs> yeah, like me, right. said 12-year-old Rodney, right? right? But yeah, I I, I really got my start in D&D &D with, with Second Edition, and it's funny that we've talked about the Assassin and we've talked about kits, and, my very first, and, and we've talked about campaign settings. My very, very first character ever was a character in Al-Qadim, and he was a thief who was a holy slayer. So basically, back ended right back into the assassin class <laughs> via a kit in a, a campaign setting. So everything we've talked about today is basically extremely, extremely important to my formative years mm -hmm. in D&D. So, yeah. I, and and Al-Qadim, you started out with... Uh, I mean, that was the creme de la creme. <laughs> I love Al-Qadim. Even to this day, like every time I start a new campaign, I'm always sitting there going, oh, maybe I should run an Al-Qadim campaign. I, I've got all of the books and everything still. I, I still love it to this day. And uh, part of that is because I, I love things with sand in it. And uh, part of it is just because it, it was always... Uh, so sort of rich with the kind of story and detail that I liked and had a different take on fantasy and yeah I could I, we could turn this into the Rodney gushes about Alcadim podcast <laughs> if you'd like but well and Alcadim I mean I was I was involved with that one from the from the the very beginning of it, mm -hmm. and uh, I was really, really proud of the way that whole thing turned out. And it was one of the few cases of a product line at TSR that was 
where the whole product line was planned from the beginning, mm-hmm. where we, we sat down and we asked, what should this be? What are the tropes we need to cover? Um, we planned it as a, as a two-year product line with the option to extend into a third year if, mm-hmm. it, if it looked like the market you know, would support it for a third year, uh, which it did. Right. You know, and we had people who were very sad when it went away at the end of thir- three years, but we just said, look, we, we planned it. We have covered everything that we feel like this product can support, and if we keep going with it at this point, we're going to be... You know, we're going to be mining weaker and weaker material as we go. Yeah, you so. can really tell too. I mean, I, I, there's no sort of cruft or extraneous supplements for academia. Mm-hmm. Like when I when I look at my shelf, I can see how every single thing fits into the setting, how every single thing is supposed to be used. So I I also appreciated when you know I was 12 years old playing academia for the first time, playing D and D for the first time. I really appreciated that. A lot of the, uh, I want to say it's the Land of Fate box set, spends time talking about just the culture and the world and uh, here's how people live and here's common sayings. And, you know, granted, most of that is taken from, uh, you know, Thousand One Arabian Nights and, and things like that. But I really, really appreciated that because I got a lot of mileage out of, uh, you know, oh, okay, like I'm going to go talk to the barber because that's what they have in, in Alcadena they have barbers, not, you know, doctors or whatever, right? right. I yeah. just, I, I really loved that that sort of complete world angle that Alcadena took. And I, I, I would say right now, if Mike were to come to me tomorrow and say, Rodney, you can do any product that you want, go nuts, I would almost certainly be like, okay, I'm doing the new Alcadena. So we'll just, we'll, we'll wrap that up right now. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I, I've always known that you loved it, but yes. I had no idea that it was your first D&D setting. Yes, I, I had never played any, uh, not, any, any D&D before I played Alcadim. Mm-hmm. And the guy that ran my campaign uh, ran it very much like what we think of as a traditional D&D campaign right now when you're in the dungeon, right? But when we got out of the dungeon, it was, it was obviously your Arabian Nights fantasy, and that's where the big difference was. So I would say I had a very... Typical adventuring experience, but it was the between adventures experience that was uh, different for me than I would say uh, anybody else in this room right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This you're talking about it is now making me want to do a podcast on what was our first for each of us. What was our first beloved campaign setting? And see how it affects our work today. Because oh, actually, yeah. when if I think through all of us on the team, in many ways, our design taste is still shaped by the whatever campaign setting we fell in love with first. Yeah, and I think that was actually one of the really interesting strengths of the second edition campaign setting approach is that it allowed a lot of different people to like D&D, right? Yeah. And a lot of different people to play the setting they wanted to play. And you can see, like, you know, you talked earlier, Steve, about the, okay, you know, mostly going for European influence, but very quickly when you get into the campaign settings, you start to get away from that, right? I mean, you got Dark Sun, Akadim, Kartour, all these different settings that basically is like, okay, we're going to do this in the core books, but then we're going to go into other cultures and other concepts, other types of fantasy in the supplements. Uh, and, you know, I need I even say Spelljammer, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and that was the, the great thing about a campaign setting is that we, we considered them to be self-contained, right? Every, they, each one had a wall built around it. So we could do anything in that campaign mm-hmm. setting and without 
polluting, if I can use that word, the, the core of the game, right? right? You, can, you can come up with whatever classes and spells and things, and, and the, as long as they work within the setting, you didn't need to worry about their effect on the larger game. And, and if anybody started crossing uh, you know, their, their spell jammer with al and ran into problems, we felt like we could legitimately wash our hands of that. <laughs> right. Not our problem. Yeah. 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 And it, it's interesting often, um, particularly, you know, uh, back in the days of third edition, when when looking at second sort of, you know, through hindsight, often those campaign settings were pointed to as a sort of source of fragmentation. But I, and I think that, you know, that might have been the case late in second edition's lifespan, mm-hmm. which it's easy to forget second edition had the longest lifespan of any edition of AD&D. But especially in the first five years of second edition, as a customer, what those campaign settings instead communicated to me was not a fragmented view of D&D, but actually this thrilling big tent where there is room in Dungeons and Dragons for all types of Mm -hmm. fantasy and even quasi-science fiction. Mm -hmm. And so to me, at least early in second edition's lifespan, uh, that was a, it was definitely a feature and not a bug, uh, that, that D and D could be expressed in such diverse ways. And I think even today that, that is still a big part of, of our games long life and, and popularity is it can morph into so many different shapes. And in many ways, I think second edition expressed that better than any edition of the game so far. Yeah, I mean, I ended up having Alcadian books on my shelf, Dark Sun books on my shelf, Forgotten Realms books on my shelf. So in like when I was consuming these books, and you know, I was, I was in high school at the time, so I didn't have a lot of them, right? When I was consuming these products, it was... It was a little bit here and a little bit there. I was never, you know, I'm just the Alkadim guy or I'm just a Dark Sun guy. I was always grabbing a little bit here and there because in my mind I was looking at these are, all of these are my potential future campaigns that I could be playing in. So I never felt that kind of fragmentation. I always felt like, oh, we're just going to lay out this wonderful smorgasbord of campaign setting ideas. So that was, I, I would agree, I felt like it was a big strength. So, uh, Jeremy, I see you're flipping through the uh, Monsters Compendium there. Yes. Yes. Uh, one of my favorite books. Well, and and one of one of the first sort of everything in the kitchen sink monster manuals Absolutely. that the game has had. It definitely has many things in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and some monsters who are almost like, oh, is that a kitchen sink? Yeah. So, Steve, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, how these got started as the different, uh, different smaller compendiums and then became the big tome? Right. We were... Um, the idea of the three-ring binder was... I mean, we were kicking that around a lot. The... Uh, uh, Right about this time was when Advanced Squad Leader came out from oh, yes. Avalon Hill with their uh, the rules in a three ring binder. So you could, uh, you know, they they were all organized by categories, and the Avalon Hill could publish errata. You could just file those pages in, um, and we thought that was such a great idea. It was it was a wonderful way to instead of having having to remember which book a particular monster was in, you could have everything in three ring binders, and you would just pull down the the uh, FGH volume, and there was whatever, you know, your knoll. Um, of course, it, it, we still ran into the problem of you couldn't have every monster being an entire sheet of paper, right? That was too much. You couldn't do that much on them. Um, so there were things that wouldn't alphabetize properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, one story that came out of that 
anybody who was really paying close attention might have noticed that the, the spelling of Ankeg changed from first edition to second edition. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, specifically because of an alphabetizing problem. The Ankeg would have, it was a one-page monster, and whatever came Im either immediately before it or immediately after it was a two-page monster, and it would have... Uh, it would have been split. It would have had to split across sheets, which we didn't want to do. So we had to change. We had to take an H out of Ankeg in order to move its position in the lineup and get this other two-page monster to, to huh. fit on one sheet of paper. Fascinating. And the history of Dungeons and Dragons was changed forever. <laughs> <laughs> or at least nobody, the nobody could ever remember how many H's there were in Ankeg <laughs> anyway. So it was not a big loss. Most people, I think, didn't even notice. Right, and so when we when, when we got the Black Border reprints is when we got this this book. Uh, you were involved in those reprints as well. Yeah, I had worked uh, real closely with the the graphic designer on doing those new layouts, and a lot of it, I, I suppose, in terms of work, the real work went into redesigning a lot of the tables, if I recall mm. it correctly, because the the um, I thought the overall the table layout became a lot more attractive mm -hmm. in those in the, the reprints than they were in the first books. Um, and I know everybody, everybody has their, either prefers the, the first or second version of them. Mm -hmm. um, the art, unfortunately, I didn't think was especially strong in either version. <laughs> um, but, you know, we had budgetary concerns. There but a lot there's of the awesome Invisible Stalker art, which is, <laughs> again, one of my favorites, and spawned yeah. no end of arguments between my friends. No, it's it's an error. No, guys, it's the Invisible Stalker. Uh, arguments of 12-year-olds. Yeah. Uh, well, so uh, we now have our reprints of these that look great. They are based on the Black Border reprints, but... Uh, they're coming out soon, or are already out, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Uh, but all three of these books uh, look fantastic. They have a nice, uh, shiny green cover to them, and I think these books are, are looking better than ever. And, and uh, when uh, Chris Perkins, Kim Mohand, and I did all of our editorial reviews uh, through them, we were even able to incorporate some errata. So oh, great. They are... They're even shinier on the inside than they were originally. <laughs> yeah, they, no, they look terrific. Yeah. Well, that wraps up this edition of the DD Podcast. Thanks to Steve Winter for joining us. And on behalf of Rodney and Jeremy, thanks for listening and enjoy your role playing until our next episode.